cousin Brucey. Here's your host, Alex Garrett. Well, I, I don't know if you heard or if you are a fan of Cousin Brucey Morrow. Uh, he had an announcement tonight on uh, the Saturday Sit Down. This is how I want to start out Alex Garrett podcasting for this edition. He made an announcement that, you know, he left uh, SiriusXM in a big way. Many fans pouring emotional support onto his page and memories. And honestly, you weren't sure why they were because he was still alive. And not only is he still alive, the man who's now 81, I believe, will be announcing midweek his next project. I mean, Cousin Brucey, WABC, go, go, go to WCBS-FM, to Sirius, and of course, in my life, Variety of the Children's Charity, to all these things that he's done. Midweek, he's got a new project he's announcing. And why do I start with him tonight? Because, let's face it, Cousin Brucey, we love you. You are a character of the airwaves. You are a someone that really took interest in seeing my media career grow to the point where when I was at Talkers Magazine last year, seeing you get your Lifetime Achievement Award, it was like old hat. It was very special. And thank you, Phil Boyce and Michael Harrison, for allowing me that opportunity to see the cuts. And by the way, a couple of things with Cousin Brucey. He mentioned on his video tonight, his live stream from his home, that someone thought he was going to buy up all the Cousin Brucey food chains uh, because he's Cousin Brucey on the East Coast. That was great. And uh, there were just some funny suggestions, I guess, people threw out to him uh, as the cuz. is not done yet. And his character is one of true, true incredible nature. He has a loving family. He has loved on kids through variety of the children's charity for years. He's loved on the listener on any platform he's been on. And so we talk about character. I would say not only was he a character, is he a character? He has character. And that is where I welcome tonight's guest, Christian B. Miller, Dr. Christian B. Miller, is my guest tonight uh, from Wake Forest. First of all, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me on your show. And literally, I picked up your book again because I thought, wow, I didn't finish it the first time, so I want to get more in depth. And as I was reading uh, The Character Gap, which is one of your best works, I know it's one of the uh, books you've written, I was thinking to myself, how applicable is it to today, right? So in in I want to start with the academia first because you were very strong in one of the chapters on cheating on the ethics, on the college admissions process. Yet over the last year, the academia has been hit with this whole scandal. So I guess I want to start there. Um, first of all, what to you is the character gap that we're seeing before this year and now during this year? Sure. So so I'll give you the, the broad characterization of the character gap, and then we can look at some examples. So I, the book is called The Character Gap. I mean that to be the gap between how our character actually is versus what our character should look like. Mm. So I think our character should look like 
a virtuous character. It should have the virtues, things like honesty, compassion, justice, temperance, fortitude, gratitude, and the like. Then there's this, that's a, that's a philosophical claim. It's an ethical claim. It's not very, I don't think it's super controversial. Uh, it's a claim that you can see throughout the history of thinking about character going all the way back to people like Plato and Aristotle and Confucius. On the other hand, there's how our character actually is. That's more of an empirical matter. That's more something that kind of changes through time and maybe changes from culture to culture. Uh, so it may changes from individual to individual. So your character, I'm sure, is much better than my character. Um, so when we look at that, I, I'm, I'm at that point probing our actual character using psychological studies and what mm -hmm. the psychological research tells us. And there I say our character is pretty much a mixed bag. We have some good sides to our character, but also some bad sides to our character, which makes us not good enough in general to qualify as virtuous, but also not bad enough to qualify as vicious. So most of us are in a, what I call a murky middle between mm. virtue and vice. Now, to make that, that's the, that was the, the, the big picture overview. To make it a little bit more applicable, um, here's some research you were talking about cheating. Mm -hmm. Here's some research that you see actually manifested in real life cheating in academia. So th this was a, I'll give you an example of one of these studies. In this study, uh, you have some participants who come in and take a test. They're told you're going to get 50 cents per correct answer. You have uh, you know, a certain amount of time to do the test. There are 20 problems. They do the test. They turn in their work. And then it's graded for them. They don't have any opportunity to cheat and they get paid accordingly. You have a second group, which has the same test, same monetary incentive of 50 cents per correct answer, but they have the opportunity to grade their own work, destroy all their materials, and then verbally report how they did. Mm. And in this group, normally the performance in quotation marks is about double what it is in the first group. Mm. So it looks like people, when they have an opportunity to cheat on these kind of tests with an incentive to cheat, they will often take advantage of it. Sure. And then the last thing, I'll, I'll wrap it up, um, is so that, that, I mean, that, that there's the real world connection. I mean, you see time and again in, in academic contexts, when students have an opportunity to cheat, they will often take advantage of it if they think they can get away with it. Uh, last one, though, this is really cool, I think. Uh, in a third variation of this setup, you had participants take the test, uh, same set, you know, financial incentive, same test and so forth. But before they took the test, they signed their university's honor code. Right. Which says, I, I will not play, I pledge my honor, I'm not lie, cheat, or steal. Something to that effect. And in this group, there was no cheating. Overall, on average, the performance in this group was the same as the baseline group, mm. which illustrates my point about mixed character, how we have some good sides to our character, so that's pretty good, but also the bad sides to our character where we're uh, inclined to cheat in certain circumstances. Christian, we've seen academia rock, though, by these omission scandals. Uh, and you had sort of said you, had, you, you didn't anticipate, from what I was reading, it to be this massive, and yet here we are. So when all this stuff with Lori Lachlan and, and Felicity Huffman went down, what was your first reaction? I mean, were you surprised or were you not surprised? Um, if I'm being honest, not surprised. Um, so it, it kind of goes along with this idea that uh, people who, so in general, it seems like we have a desire to cheat mm. if certain conditions are met. 
if we think we can get away with it and we think it's significantly beneficial. Well, you know, so, your, oh, and a lot of your topic is about uh, getting away with it, that people lie if they think they get away with it, that people cheat. The thing. So how does one's instinct say, well, I could get away with it, but I won't do it. Like, I'm sure you've seen studies of that too. Like, yeah, I could get away with it, but I'm not going to go that route. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are, you know, that's the, that's the mixed side of it. Um, it's, it's not just kind of pure dishonesty. Uh, a purely dishonest person will, you know, look for those opportunities to cheat. And if they think they can get away with it, they will systematically take advantage of those opportunities. Hmm. But there are at the same time, various checks and curbs that hold us back from cheating and acting on that desire to cheat. And one is the role of moral reminder. So uh, if we are and what, uh, you know, what, what we are morally required to do, then it's very hard for us to turn around and subsequently cheat. Mm. That's what I like that study so much because what the honor code does in that instance is serve as a moral reminder. It says, you know, here or make your value salient to you consciously that you think it's important not to be a cheater. And then a few minutes later, it's going to be very hard for you to turn around for us and people in general to turn around mm-hmm. and subsequently cheat on a test. So uh, fortunately, um, there are those, those checks in place. And so this becomes a, a, a broader theme where we think about how to grow in honesty and become better people in this area of our lives. Well, one way to do so is to have regular more reminders in our lives. Right. You know, so have things like, you know, in the morning, starting your day off with a certain re- reading, could be religious reading, non-religious reading, morally, uh, morally deep reading, um, that orientates you in your day to what matters. You know, and end your day with uh, diary reflection. On yeah. What went wrong, what, what didn't. Those kind of things can be really helpful. Christian, I did like that you didn't say some people use their moral ground to hide behind that and still do things. So there, it's, it feels murky even so. Because people could say, yeah, I'm morally grounded, but their actions don't say it sometimes, right? Yeah, that, oh, that's for sure, for sure. So, um, so this would be a, a case of moral hypocrisy. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're publicly, you're displaying yourself as a moral authority. You're making moral pronouncements. You're saying, you know, you should never cheat on your, uh, you know, a good parent would never cheat on uh, an admissions application to USC. Would never help help his or her daughter uh, do that. Um, so that's what they're publicly saying, and then privately, there's something else going on in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's just the quintessential definition of a, a moral hypocrite. The outside doesn't match the inside. There's a big disconnect. And yeah, I think that's a a, a, a widespread phenomena, alas, sadly. Christian, uh, you were also talking about uh, philosophy, and what I've always equated that is means to an end. And I got to be honest, after the death of George Floyd, I felt like it was very fake that some of these big companies pitched into the movements. It was like, well, where were you before? I don't know if you want to weigh in on that, but that's just how I was feeling. Was I right to feel that way? Um, so the, so two issues here. So first you brought up means to an end. Um, so this, there'll be comment on that, and then we can talk about the companies too. Uh, so there is a there is a difference between 
caring about something as an end and caring about something as a means to some other end, right? Uh, so, you know, do I care about my, my children as an end? Do I love them for their own sake or do I just treat them as a way of, uh, you know, a source of enjoyment or status or whatnot? Well, one is clearly better than the other, right? Uh, sure. A loving parent loves his or her children for their own sake as ends, not merely as means. Well, now apply that to you, the example you gave. Um, if companies just saw this as a marketing opportunity to increase their recognition and get on the good side of, 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 the, of the crowd and kind of be in line with what the current trend is, um, well, then, they, yeah, that, that's, that's just means to an end. That's instrumentalizing something that's much more important and deeper than that. Now, I, I, I'm reticent to like pick out a particular company and say, oh, you did that and sure. you didn't. But if, just make it, make it conditional. If they did that, um, that's morally, I think, reprehensible for sure. And, you know, the statistics that you've put out there are just incredible on, on a lot of this stuff. It's like patterns aren't broken. In fact, 80%, 90% of the time, these patterns of getting away with it or being insincere just keep going and maybe you wrote this and are existing to help break those patterns. Would, would you say that? Um, I, I would say that the, that the existence of mixed character and a lot of the patterns of disappointing behavior that we see in the psychological research and then played out in real life. Um, you know, th those patterns have been around for a long time. Uh, the studies that were done in the sixties, when you, you know, do them again in the two thousands, they, they kind of show similar results. Uh, so yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, my hope is that people don't stay in the area of mixed character, mm. myself included, because I don't claim to have sure. a virtuous character. I don't claim to be better than anyone, anyone else here, um, but we'll take kind of concrete steps to try to slowly break out of those patterns for sure. Character change is possible. That's good news. We're not stuck with the character we, we've always had, but the, the kind of, it has to be tempered good news because it's not something you can just flip a switch and overnight right. go from being mixed to virtuous. It's going to take, you know, as with all habits in life, with all patterns, it, it takes slow, gradual work and improvement. Christian Miller is who I'm talking with. He's the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University. So glad you could join us tonight. And what I was also fascinated with is your love of this subject. So, you say you don't claim to be virtuous, but I feel like you've had experiences where, yeah, I could talk about this on a certain ground. So what led you to research character? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, part of it, I, I'll give you an, an academic answer. And then part of it, I'll give you a more personal answer. So the academic answer is that uh, I just got bored and burned out with what I was researching before. Um, okay. So I, 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 I used to research a lot more on the question of, where does morality come from? The foundations of morality. What is the source of morality? Is mm -hmm. morality objective? Is morality merely a matter of a personal opinion or cultural, uh, cultural creation? And that was what I wrote my dissertation on at Notre Dame uh, when I graduated in 2004. And I worked on it for several years after that when I was uh, hired as a professor at Wake Forest. But I, I said what I wanted to say. I kind of you know, mm -hmm. was interested in that for a while, but then I, I get, get restless after a while. So I moved into the character literature because there was a really fascinating discussion going on there about whether character even exists, mm -hmm. whether it's real or not. 
uh, and people, philosophers were paying a lot of attention to the psychological research, which they, they don't normally tend to do. They tend to be more, you know, historically more armchair, uh, you know, big picture, thinking hard without getting our, you know, our feet wet in the, in the muddy waters of, of, of empirical research. Okay, mm. so that's part of the story. But also there, there's another part of the story, which is, um, you know, I, I, I got married, I had children, um, you know, there's my own character that matters, but there's, you know, character people around me too. Um, it became, um, you know, what, what character I have matters now a lot more with respect to my children sure. than it might've mattered just when I was single on my own. Um, so, you know, it, it, the character took on a greater sense of urgency and a, mm. and a greater personal depth and relevance once I had family. So I feel like you would think your character has sort of changed in this research, no? Well, I'm not, I don't know if I'm the best judge of that. I should probably ask people who have been with me, like my parents and my, my wife for a long time and see, ask them if they've seen some changes. You know, one of the theme of the book is that we're often not the best judge of our own character. That we tend to inflate our character uh, and make it better. Think think it's better than it really is. Um, but you know, I hope that it has changed. Um, certain things I used to worry a lot about, or and was not proud of, I don't worry as much about anymore. So to give an example, I used to um, be envious and jealous of people in my field mm. more than I am now. I I used to think, well, why, why is this person getting this invitation or getting hired to this job when they're you know they're credentials don't seem to be very impressive and so forth. And so that was a, a, a character flaw of mine that either I've suppressed or maybe moved past. But then, you know, it's not like it's all rosy. So that's other character flaws emerge. And, you know, I have other struggles that things like pride and, um, you know, uh, self-centeredness and so forth, uh, I really need to, to work on. Actually, I'll be honest. I think uh, you're being humble when you say, uh, yeah, I was jealous of others because you sit here and you were given grants to actually research this. And congratulations on that. Oh, and, uh, you know, we talk about grants, but but how meaningful was it to get those grants? And also, how meaningful is it to get grants to study character uh, along with everything else that people apply for grants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to give a little bit of backstory for your listeners. Um, so that, So when I switched into working on character, from the old stuff. Um, a couple of years afterwards, we had this opportunity at Wake Forest to apply to the, the Templeton Foundation. And we, we, we got this grant for the, what we called the Character Project. And that was, you know, was, that was really career shaping and, and career altering for me. It was a five-year research project um, where we looked at character from the perspectives of philosophy, theology, and psychology. And then you're right that one of the big things we did with that was not keep the money for ourselves at Wake Forest for our own right. research, we did, we did some of that. Of course, we did our, we did our own research. We wrote books and we, we did uh, psychology studies. But most of the money went towards funding competitions where people all over the world applied mm -hmm. to us with their projects. And these were, these were on purpose, not really famous, distinguished people working on character. These were people just starting out mm -hmm. with new ideas that haven't had been supported yet or many, not many publications, but they, they just needed a boost to get their career started and get those ideas out there for a larger audience. And so that was, that's been definitely one of the most rewarding parts of my career 
which is helping out these other scholars to work on the topic of character. I think you can write, would you say you could write a whole book on 2020 and character and empathy? Because I got to ask, has the gap widened this year alone from where you sit? Uh, I mean, 2020 has been a really tough year. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it seems like it. Um, it. It's really tricky though. And I think we have to break it down in different ways. So, you know, is it that the gaps widened or that 2020 disclosed a gap that was always there, but more hidden. Um, so, you know, is it that suddenly people's character really changed dramatically from 19 to 20? Mm. Or is it more that the, the difficult circumstances revealed people's character in a new way or in a more transparent way that had been there all along? I'm, I'm inclined to think it's, it's the second one. Uh, mm. that, 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 that we, that we, you know, things like COVID, you know, things like racial tensions and so forth uh, serve to, you know, difficult circumstances in general serve to um, to peel away certain uh, facades that we put up and better reveal what our true heart is. Uh, What did you you see? Like what, what was revealed to you maybe even in your own experiences. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that was striking to me, let's take COVID uh, here, uh, is how different people's character tends to be. Uh, so it, you, you know, you, it's tempting to think by and large people are, are, are quite similar. Um, you know, we live in these communities and they're rather homogenous often, but look at the ways people have responded differently to the virus. And you would know better than me. I mean, you, you've lived in an environment which is much where you face with it much more than, than I have here in, in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, people willing to obey the inthor- instructions of authorities, people who are not willing to do so. Sure. People who are um, very patient, people who are not patient, people who are will- willing to be compassionate, towards neighbors who need help, people who uh, tend to just focus on themselves and become very self-interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I see uh, stark individual differences in character being illuminated in ways that I didn't appreciate before. I saw here in New York, a lot of people though, doing the 7 p.m. cheer and doing all those things. And I felt like our city was coming together even from inside. Yet when you go online, you see a totally different picture elsewhere. So it was a weird contrast to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, and we don't have anything like that here. And, and be, you know, I, I would love to to see what that was like. Um, and you know, same thing in Italy. I, I watched the videos of of people sing, singing from their balconies yeah. in Italy when it was the worst there. So part of that c- goes into the theme I tried to elaborate on at the beginning, which is mixed character. You know, it's it's easy to fixate on the negative sides to our character, uh, but it's not vicious. Most people's character is not vicious. And here's one of the the kind of beautiful sides of character coming through where Mm -hmm. people, you know, show solidarity, community, bonding, friendship, um, love towards each other during difficult times. Um, I think a character is, it definitely has some good sides to it. But you are one to point out that sometimes in the time of crisis, people will do things just to make themselves look better. Um, 
I didn't really see that in New York. Maybe you saw that around you. I just saw people not even caring about that. They just wanted to help out, which was great. Really? Okay. Um, and it's, it's difficult to really sort this out because you'd have to probe internal psychology here. Hmm. You know, there's a difference between our internal psychology and our outward behavior. And when you see people behaving well, it could be for a variety of different motives or reasons. You know, is it because they, uh, they generally care about the neighbors or is it because they're trying to make a good impression or is it because they're trying to gain rewards in the afterlife or is it because mm -hmm. they don't want to be criticized by others. And I'm not saying one's the correct or, or the other. I'm just sure. saying it, it's a, it's a very, very tricky business to read off internal psychology from external behavior. Well, and, and I, so say, I, I feel I like I can be very, very cautious about that. I feel like I'm falling into your, into the trap, which you actually talk about, which is most people want to think everybody's good. And maybe I'm falling into that trap with the whole support of healthcare heroes. Uh, it sounds like I might be, cause we don't know the actual motives, but on the outside, it looks good. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And I, I'm not going to, please don't anyone hear me as sure. like, detracting from what, from, from their character or questioning their motives or anything like that. Um, all I will say is, uh, in or I'll say two things. Um, first of all, in order to have a good character, you need to have cross situational consistency. That's fancy verbiage for, um, display a good character across a mm -hmm. wide variety of situations, not just one situation. Okay. Right. Um, and then, you know, the, the second thing is, uh, in general, it does seem like, I'm not talking about this particular case. You say in general, it does seem like we do have an inflated opinion of our, of how good we are. So when you give surveys to people to rate their characters from one to five, the five being really good character, five, uh, one being bad character, people tend to give themselves a four out of five mm. on their character in general. And then also on particular virtues, like on their honesty, their compassion, et cetera. And that's a, a cross-cultural trend. It's not just unique to Americans. You might think Americans are so full of themselves and so forth. That's not, the, that's not uh, a difference here. When you look cross-culturally, you see the same trends in Brazil and other parts of the world. My favorite thing about New York is sometimes they say we're tough and tumble. And yet sometimes when visitors come to New York and they're like, you guys aren't so bad. I'm like, I know it's what the media says, you know, <laughs> thanks for not listening to the media. But, you know, we were, we were following the journey of your friend, Frank, and your friend, Frank went through so many different things. Um, how did you model what his journey was throughout the whole book? What was, what did you base that off of? Well, um, so just for, for listeners who haven't, read the book. Um, Frank is a, a fictional character that I created for the book. Uh, and I just wanted to, so let, let me put it this way. Sure. I've written for academics my entire life. I, I, there's a way of writing for an academic audience where you use a lot of jargon, you keep things abstract, and you have to be uh, a fellow kind of academic with a PhD to be able to follow along what's going on. The idea with Frank and you know this these examples in the book was to try and take the abstraction way down, and say you know here's some results from a study or here's an idea from philosophy, but let, what does that actually mean in a, a case study, right? Mm -hmm. And so so here comes Frank, uh, our, our fictional person. He's going into the lab one day. 
and suppose it's the Milgram studies from the 1960s. So he would be coming in, you know, instead of just giving you these numbers, you know, 60% did this and 10% did that, and you know, give you these abstract numbers. So this guy comes into the lab, he's told that you need to administer a, a test to someone in the next room. So Frank comes in, he sits down, he starts giving a test to the person next room. Every wrong answer that the person gets in the next room, you have to, you Frank have to turn up a dial mm -hmm. and make a shock more and more for the test taker in the next room. Mm -hmm. And so the story unfolds about Milgram and the story unfolds about other studies through the perspective of this character rather than from the perspective of the kind of stale, you know, sometimes uh, foggy eye creating, you know, like, you know, like I, my eyes kind of blur over a little bit when I see a lot of numbers on the page. That's the idea. Well, and I got to tell you, I'm not a fan, so to speak, of Milgram, because I think he also ended up killing people, right? I mean, was there death in his studies with all this shocking or no? Well, well, so uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> so um, let's be real clear. So the, this is the Milgram studies from the 1960s where um, there was no, no death. But um, if you were a participant and you were fully obedient, and I'll say what that means in a second, it would have seemed like there was death. So you, you're, you're, you're right in, in a sense. Um, so when the participant comes in, like Frank, sits down, gives a test to, to the test taker in the next room who's hooked up to an electric shock machine, uh, mm. the participant doesn't know it's all fake. It's all an act. There is no actual electric shock machine. There's no, no shocking going on. But the participant doesn't know that. And so as time goes on, there are more and more wrong answers. There's more uh, uh, shocking supposedly going on. The dial is being turned up more and more. The person in the next room starts saying things like, uh, ouch, and then starts screaming and it pounds on the walls and says, you know, I'll get me out of here. I don't want to take this test anymore. I have a heart condition. Mm. Uh, terrible stuff. And then if the participant is fully obedient, which means listens to the instructions of the scientist in charge who says, please continue, you must go on. If the participant like Frank listens to that and obeys, then the shock dial goes all the way up, up to the XXX level and there's silence, which implies death. Wow. Um, so yes, it would have, if, if the participants believe this was real, and you could, you could ask that question, Maybe they thought it was all fake and you know, they, didn't, they didn't actually trust the setup. But if they did believe it was real, then it would have seemed to them like they had killed the person in the next room, even though they, thankfully, wow. they didn't. Yeah. That, <laughs> that is, and then there was one quote which actually put in sort of the post, uh, the PS of the chapter, the disappearance of a sense of responsibility is most far-reaching consequence of submission to authority. There are so many ways I feel like that's applicable to today. Uh, we may not be able to find work right now. However, to me, if we keep allowing like unemployment to keep going or specifically if we keep the stimulus going, then people will lose that sense of responsibility that they don't have to work. And I'm a little nervous about that, to be honest with you. Yep. Yeah, so this is called um, diffusion of responsibility or absolving oneself of responsibility. In the Milgram case, a lot of participants asked, will I be responsible for this? Mm. 
and the authority figure would say behind who's standing behind him would say no i take responsibility and then that seemed to license them the participants to continue on turning the shock dial all the way up uh to the xxx level i never said uh over 65 percent of the participants went all the way to the xxx level so that's important and that and and for our listeners they then said well it's not me that did it it's the person that my authority that said so and right. Yep. It, it's why your book is why heroes are so important to highlight because there are the few that say, no, we're not going to stand for this. Right. And That's I think right. what your examples did said, made the exact point why we should honor heroes who don't stand for injustice, so to speak. Yep. Very, very good. Right. So, so then you see this, you know, with Milgram was it just an artifact of the, of the lab and you know, just a, a fake setup that had no real world application. Well, absolutely not. There are plenty of examples in the corporate world, uh, in, the, uh, in the military context, mm-hmm. where there's a chain of command or a hierarchy of whatever kind, and people in the middle or the lower parts of the hierarchy believe that they're maybe doing something questionable, but they can pass the responsibility to the people above them. Mm-hmm. And so their, their kind of hands are clean and they can, they can sleep at night. Well, that's that might psychologically put people at rest, but morally speaking, it doesn't let you off the hook. It's still morally wrong. And so you're right just to highlight people who don't go along with the group who, who buck the trends, who say, no, this is something wrong. I'm going to stand up for what's right, mm-hmm. even if it's going to cost me in the process. And those are, those are heroes. People we consider well, wrong. right. And I mean, today... <laughs> And it's so weird because we're we're asked to wear masks by authority, right? We're pretty much asked to do that. We're required to do that. Um, but I would say if a business doesn't require it, they may be vilified, but I guess they're standing out. They're trying to say, no, we're not going to. I'm so torn with this because I think it's good character to wear the mask if you need to. However, if you don't need to, if you're far away from someone, I just would say you don't need to necessarily wear it. So there's like a a balance which we've sort of lost with this whole debate yeah that that's tricky um i mean i'm I'm inclined to say you know this this ties in also to milgram in a sense of authority figures and obeying authority figures mm-hmm. and the lesson you know one, one lesson from milgram is uh we shouldn't just default to obeying whatever an authority figure tells us we need to use our own conscience and our own more reasoning and we need to assess what we're being told and come to the best more conclusion we we can mm. and in the case of the mask you know we have to look at the evidence to the extent we can our lives are busy we can't read all the scientific papers you know we have there's a leap of faith and there's trust involved here too but you know we need to come to a reasoned conclusion about whether this is a morally appropriate thing not only for my health but for the health of other people who i interact with mm-hmm. And my, you know, my, for what it's worth, take on that is, yes, that is the morally appropriate thing to do in the, in the right circumstance. You're right. I mean, if you're outside, you know, by yourself, well, that, that, that seems silly. Um, Counterproductive, or, actually. But. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and if you're outside and other people are 10 feet away, then, you know, that that's, doesn't seem necessary either. But, you know, in the usual context where we're talking about this, um, assess what the instructions are and how much evidence there is being behind them mm. but then if it looks like an unreasonable command or order from an authority figure 
I think we should go along with it. Well, I don't know if you want to weigh in, but should businesses be told how to run their business? Is is it that much of a crisis where that's okay? Or should the state relax some restrictions and say, you know what, a business can decide for themselves? Yeah, I mean, it would probably depend on what the particular issue is and what the business is. I'm, I'm reticent to make general pronouncements. I, When it comes to ethics, I like to go very much case by case um, and see because so much of the of ethics depends upon the particular details of the situation. Uh, not to say that it's, it's all a matter of opinion or relative or anything like that, but just that morality is complicated and messy. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about uh, a restaurant that, you know, uh, doesn't want to, wants to keep, kind of do business as usual, uh, no change to the seating arrangements, pack people in, um, you know, have say employees don't wear, you know, actually order employees to not wear a mask. Um, I mean, you, you could make the argument, well, it's up to the, the consumer to decide whether, you know, knowing sure. this about it, it's up to the consumer to decide whether to patronize the establishment or not. Many p- consumers are going to see this and say, uh, that's not for me. And then the, the, the business is going to be in trouble. They're going to probably lose mass amounts of revenue. Um, on the other hand, you know, is there a public health good at stake here, you know, mm-hmm. which would uh, say, look, in this kind of situation, we, the states, are going to mandate you, the restaurant, to obey these restrictions, or you're not going to be able to continue to open on the grounds of this public safety. Um, I, don't, I think I tend to go with the second one there, in, in that case. Um, the, the health and safety of the public um, trumps the discretion of that particular business. Mm. But again, it's, I don't know if I want to say it in every case. I mean, take, sure. take a gym. Um, gyms are very controversial at the moment, uh, which is going to follow a lot of the, the safety practices. It's going to have temperature checks and it's going to have all, all kinds of, you know, very rigorous, as, as rigorous as schools are. Right. Um, now, what about in that case? Uh, I don't, is there a relevant difference between that and a school? I, I don't know. I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll say I don't know on that one. That's, uh, this is fascinating. And I just think somehow our character or somehow the mask has really sort of defined people's character now, right? So unfortunately, if you don't wear it, you're looked at as a, uh, well, I would hate to say Trump supporter, but they've sort of classified that as that. And they may not be at all. They just may not feel like wearing the mask. Um, on the other hand, if you wear the mask, you're seen as sheeple. It's like we can't get away from the judgment right now. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's really unfortunate. I mean, I, I really am sad that it's gotten politicized. Um, I, I, I wish it was just more, more factual, you know, that, that, that either this is going to help prevent suffering or it's not, mm. right? And if it is, if it's established that it's going to make a significant difference in pre- preventing future suffering, then, you know, I would hope that that would be the kind of the end of the story. Um, so, uh, you know, I, but, but, uh, but, but the fact that it's become politicized and a kind of a badge of political alignment um, is, is a shame. It is. Uh, and it kind of makes people wary to do either one, to be honest with you, right? Like, why would I want to do it if, or not do it? It, it just, it puts people in a weird corner, I think. Uh, but this thing with the authority and actually pushing blame up to the top. 
Now, I'm for law enforcement. I believe we need police. Mm-hmm. However, I think your example dictates why bad cops do what they do because they feel like they can get away with it because they are hiding by the, behind the badge. So when, when I was reading that section, I'm like, this is why, because they feel protected. So would a malpractice suit against a certain police officer uh, be welcome at this time? Like, is that what we need to hold police accountable? Is that kind of what you would say with all these arguments? Um, yeah. So again, I would need to go case by case and look at the, look at the details. I'm reticent to make general pronouncements, but um, you know, I certainly, um, I, I, I'm one who wants to preserve law enforcement. Absolutely. Uh, I think there are lots of police officers who are doing a fine job. Um, so I'm not going to, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Um, I would say it seems to me that there are a variety of different ways in which we might try and work against bad behavior here. Sure. You, you, you pointed to a very kind of blunt instrument, uh, you know, malpractice lawsuits. Um, and that in certain circumstances seems like, yes, that, that could be justified. Um, there could be other more um, slow, gradual uh, steps too. things like, well, paying attention to what kind of um, role modeling mm-hmm. someone is receiving. So um, it's not just a matter of the, the police officer on the street. What kind of role model do they see at the higher level command? Mm-hmm. As we were just talking about, um, what comes from the authority can filter down to people who are lower in the hierarchy. Right. Um, so if, if they see, you know, uh, 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 a captain who's um, caring, compassionate, fair, just, impartial, those mm-hmm. kind of things, that can serve as an exemplar, uh, a moral, you know, kind of, um, a role model to look to for how one should care, conduct one business, one's business sure. and, and live one's life. Um, now, you know, again, that's not a quick fix, or that's not an easy solution, mm-hmm. but it's certainly, uh, I think, um, if you really want to affect character change, mm-hmm. merely having lawsuits isn't going to bring about real character change. It's got to be uh, deeper than that. One other thing on this, uh, because the other side also isn't showing very good character when it turns into rioting and looting, um, and yet it's almost like that, that situation in the target where this man collapses and he on black friday he passed away and uh and people don't help don't don't talk to them and all i'm i'm asking christian is that people in these group chats where they organize the criminal activity someone's got to be the hero and say hey this is not right uh why don't we see enough of that in even the protests like why don't we see or the riots like someone doesn't stop them it's just you'd think someone would be there and say this isn't right yeah yeah um, this is probably outside of my area of you know competence here. I mean, it, l- let me at least uh, draw on what I've learned from some of the psychological research. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to yes, I'm no expert on on what's going on today here. Um, so the example that you refer to is a real life example. This is what I start the book with uh, of Walter Vance who collapsed in a uh, Target store on Black Friday when he was doing some Christmas shopping. And for quite a while, no one helped him. He, he had a heart condition. He had a heart attack in the aisle. And people were, would see his body on the ground, and they would turn the other direction. 
some people would even actually step over his body to get to mm -hmm. that TV or whatever they wanted before anyone else and just leave him there lying on the ground. And eventually some nurses came along, they uh, called for an ambulance, but he died on the way to the hospital. Um, this is an illustration, of, a real world illustration of what's called the group effect or the bystander effect, mm -hmm. where um, in group contexts, and when an emergency is going on, if no one else does anything to help, it's very unlikely that we'll do anything to help ourselves. And one, uh, this has been documented you know, for, for decades, uh, famous studies going back to the 1960s found this, uh, that if you're in a, in, a, in a situation where someone else uh, isn't responding to an emergency, most of the participants won't respond to the emergency either. And the, one of the key um, explanations of what's going on here that will tie back to your question is the role of fear of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. um, that, oh, two things actually. Uh, so I'll mention two things. One is diffusion of responsibility. So when you're in a group and an emergency is happening, the responsibility for addressing the emergency is diffused over the entire group. So you, it's not just doesn't fall to you by yourself. You bear maybe like 5% of the responsibility or 1% mm -hmm. of the responsibility depending on the group. And so it's much easier to melt into the group and hide in the group than it is to step out from the group. Mm. Um, and then the other thing I, I alluded to was uh, fear of embarrassment. So you know, we don't want to look bad in front of other people, right. especially people who think like us or are part of our in-crowd. And so if we go against that in-crowd, we might be ostracized or cast out mm. or made to look like a fool in front of them. Mm. That's that's a surprisingly powerful emotion that we have, this fear of embarrassment. And we, uh, we, unfortunately, it holds us back from doing the right things quite a bit. Christian, we're going to have you back because there's so much we can unpack. <laughs> I've yet to finish the whole book, to be honest. So I'm, I'm glad that's sort of like a starter course, if you will. Um, by the way, speaking of courses, how was the teaching online? I never asked you that for the semester. Um, the whole thing. It was, so at Wake Forest, we, we switched midway through at spring break, and we went from in-person to online. And I was really actually apprehensive going into it and quite pleased at the end of it uh, because I, I did my classes synchronously. So we just met you know, in real time online, uh, and we kind of just carried on like we were doing before. So I got to see in front of my, on my computer screen, I would see in my intro class, all 30 students right there, everyone's head there on the screen. Uh, we would do the same amount of handouts, the same kind of uh, discussion and interaction, same grade assignments. So it went fairly smoothly. It's not ideal, you know, I, I would never prefer it, but uh, I, I, was, I was actually quite relieved. Christian, I also know that some have actually not seen that response. So I think that that sort of is like a character trait that you can get all your students on a Zoom. I mean, that means that that's a good credit to you. Well, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't, you're very kind to say that, but um, I mean, w one thing that I, I did, which I'm um, really happy with, is I didn't do the asynchronous recordings of lectures. A lot of online teaching involves, you know, me or someone sitting down in front of a computer and just recording a pre-prepared lecture on the computer and then having the students download it at their leisure and watch it. That has a big downside when it comes to connection and engagement. Uh, students just, just don't feel connected anymore to the university and to the professor and to other students in the class. So I was really uh, uh, intentional about trying to make sure 
we kept those human connections in place as much as we could. I love that. And I know I was hearing from someone last week, they spent hours recording and it's like, that's, that's great work for them to be able to do that, but I'm sure it's not ideal. So kudos to you for still doing it. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, say that everyone should do it or that's it's bad or anything. It just, for me, you know, if it's a chemistry class, it's a different story, right? Right. You just got to record the, the facts and, and have the students mm-hmm. learn them. But for me, for philosophy, where I'm really trying to get that discussion going and a debate going and working on critical reasoning and, and objections and responses and arguments, uh, I, I was happy with this approach. One last thought, a question before we, we conclude this session, and I've been very happy to talk with you about this. It's, it's about as good as I was hoping and more because you are so knowledgeable about this yeah. and really hit what I was hoping to hit on today. But what I was going to ask you is, have there been laws like do character studies lead to laws? Like, has there been a connection with all of that? Yeah. I mean, so character study in general leads to, I mean, you can go back historically uh, people like Plato, for example, wanted to build his society around uh, notions of character and virtue. Um, you know, in, in more recent years, for, I think for sure in a sense that, um, the more we learn about people's character, um, the more we can identify weaknesses and places we want to guard against and try to implement whether we want to call them laws or some or just policies or guidelines to curb those negative tendencies. So sure. you know, something like an honor code, it's not a law, but it's a, it's a school's approach to trying to work against some negative sides of students' character. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, whatever the prescriptions look like, uh, they can certainly and should be, be informed by what we're learning about character. Well, I hope that uh, everything, and it's sort of like self-reliance too, right? So that's the other thing about character is how do we build our own self-reliance? And I think you guys through the honor code have done that for years and, and, um, you know, we're better for it. Well, uh, I mean, the character is, I appreciate you saying that character is a, um, it's a, it's a topic that will never end. It's, it's one of the foundational topics of, of civilization. Um, and, and it'll never become perfect, sadly, you know, there, there will always be room to grow. Um, sure. so the more we talk about it, the better, uh, and the more we try to improve it, the better too. One other thing, do you, do you know of any professors who study this that are actually in think tanks that are trying to move policies forward with a character-based insight? Uh, I might have to get back to you on that one. Well, you know what? Let's, uh, let, I'll do some research. Maybe we can talk about that next time around. Yeah. Love to. <laughs> hey, that's, that's Chris, homework. You, you, you give me homework. <laughs> uh, Christian, thank you so much. Christian Miller. You're a doctor. I know you don't want me to call you that, but Dr. Miller, uh, you are a PhD on this and you've been doing this for years. So thanks so much for talking to us about this. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really enjoyed our conversation. We are going to talk to you soon on Alex Garrett Podcast.